Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. And we have spent a few weeks looking more in, in depth at suffer. Uh, you know, it's only a few verses in Mark's gospel, but uh, it's so significant. Uh, we did dwell a little bit there, and now we're, we're pivoting uh, as the disciples are following Jesus uh, from the upper room and um, to the Mount of, Mount of Olives. They are heading into darkness. Definitely uh, the gospel takes a turn here. So I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to read verses 26 to 31. And when they had sung, uh, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, well, Even if they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Now it reveals the truth about who you are. Uh, and we pray that we would have not just the, the courage, hope uh, that following you, even, even the dark places, uh, will show us more of, uh, of who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And I'll just add to Don's note, if you want to be free from your mask for a little bit of the service, you, you could preach. Um, anyway, um, so, so I want to look at this passage and, and explore three different angles that the disciples, as, as much as, as they, we keep seeing them through the gospel, um, endeavoring to, to get to know Jesus better, they, they seem to keep stumbling over themselves. This is another one of those places. But they're trying to know Jesus. They're trying to know him, and, and we are trying to know him as well. Jesus predicts that Peter will deny him, um, and, and we know that that prediction does come true, but Peter nonetheless says, no way, that's not going to happen. Uh, so we're trying to know Jesus, but, but we also, like Peter, have times when we deny Jesus. We're trying to know him, but we also have a time deny that we know him. Uh, and, and all the while, what, what the gospel is calling us to do, uh, every one of us, male and female and young and old and so on, like the gospel is calling us to, to be dying to know him. Like, how much do you really want to know Jesus? How, what do you, what, what's it worth to you to, to know him? What are you willing to sacrifice? What are you willing to suffer in order to know him as he truly is, to know him by name, Right? Uh, so we're going to explore those themes, like trying to know Jesus, dying, de denying we know him, and also dying to know him. Uh, so let's start in verse 26. And we, we looked at this verse last week, talking about the Passover and the significance of the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113 to 118. And they would have sung Psalms 113 and 14 before the Passover meal. And then to conclude the Passover meal, they would have sung 115 to 118. And, uh, and, and you can sort of imagine that the disciples still have a song in their heart as they're, 
you know, thinking, what a great Passover. It was weird, right? It was strange, right? Jesus kind of changed up the script, but it was so good. We just loved Passover. And they, they've got this song, this anthem of Psalm 118 going, you know, the Lord is good. We give thanks to him. His love endures forever as, uh, as they head out, you know, into, into the night. They're just going to do what they've always done. Jesus says, okay, you know, we're done here. It's time to pack up the Passover and we're going to head to the Mount of Olives. And, and, and so the disciples just go, okay, that's great. And they follow Jesus from the upper room. Um, 1.25 miles is what I read from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives, uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane specifically. And they take that little hike and they're following Jesus. They just do what, they always, what they've always been doing. And, and that's really the only way uh, that, that anybody can get to know Jesus personally is to follow him. Because the only way to really know anybody personally is to be with them. And the only way to be with Jesus is to follow him. You know, you can, you can know a lot of things about Jesus. Uh, you can learn about him in theology, textbooks, and in reading commentaries. You, you can learn a lot about him. You can hear a lot about him from listening to sermons or podcasts or going to Bible studies. You, you, can, you can see um, see him and, and, and learn a lot about him by, you know, stories and artwork and so on. But, you know, you don't really know him and have a relationship with him until you're with him. So that's not a surprise. Uh, you can know a lot about LeBron James. You can know a lot about uh, Taylor Swift, you can know a lot about Tom Hanks by, you know, watching the movies, listening to the music, you know, watching him play basketball. You can learn a lot about people from how you observe them, but until you're with them, you don't really know them. And the only way to, to really know Jesus is to be with him. And the only way to be with Jesus is to follow him. He doesn't stay put. He's not static. He doesn't stand around. He's always on the move. And as you read Mark, as we've been reading through Mark, I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, you know, consistently you keep coming across this word, one word, immediately. Immediately Jesus did this. Immediately they did this. Immediately this happened. And there's this pace that's uh, like by the time you get to the end of Mark, you should feel like you're sort of out of breath because it, it, Jesus keeps moving. And the only way to be with Jesus is to follow him because he's not going to stay put. So we know this, um, and, and it's not a surprise because the con consistent command from Jesus is, follow me, follow me, follow me. In John, he says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Um, and that's a great pairing of what we're talking about. Jesus says, I am the light, I'm the light of the world, and whoever follows me will have the light. So if you follow me, you'll have me, because I'm the light. And, and that's, that's fundamental. You can't be with Jesus without following him. You can't really know him without being with him. So we follow Jesus because we want to know him better. Uh, and, and that then creates the tension, because inevitably Jesus is going to lead us someplace where we're going to go, huh? Uh, plenty of times, though, Jesus leads us to places where we go, yeah, this is, this is, this is great. This is, this is what I signed up for, you know, blessing, peace, fellowship, you know, good, good feelings. Uh, and, and then there's other times where, 
Jesus is just downright confusing and puzzling because he leads us places where we go, I don't like this. This doesn't feel good. This is uncomfortable. This is disorienting. Uh, it's sort of like the hike that uh, Kathy and uh, my, my wife Kathy and our, daughter, our youngest daughter Lydia, who's 14, we, we went uh, up to Calf Mountain about two weeks ago because we thought, hey, let's go pick blackberries. Uh, all, all of us are doing all these outdoor things, right? <laughs> Trying to find things to do. Let's go hike. Uh, so we went up to, to Calf Mountain, parked at Beagle Gap on Skyline Drive. It's a 2.1 mile hike to the top of Calf Mountain. And we remembered, uh, we went to this hike because years ago we had done this hike and that's when we discovered all these wild blackberries growing along the path. And and it was super fun to just pick blackberries as we were hiking. And so we thought, let's go do that hike again. This, this year, we were about two weeks too late uh, for blackberries. And we, had, we were full of anticipation, ready to make you know, peach and blackberry cobbler after this hike. We had our containers ready to pick a bunch of blackberries. And like uh, all the blackberries were these shriveled little raisins of you know, versions of blackberries. And so... We'd find one or two ripe ones and throw them in the Tupperware thing, plunk, plunk. And, uh, and, and it's just poor, poor Tupperware container by the time we were done. It just it was this haphazard, empty, almost empty thing of, you know, almost rotten blackberries. Not the best harvest uh, that we were hoping for. Still a nice hike, though. On the way up, we saw a little deer fawn, and then we saw the little fawn's mother, you know, the doe. And it was just beautiful, and the, the fawn scampered off into the, the bushes, and, the, and then the doe came up the path behind Kathy and Lydia, and I took their picture. It was this great hike moment. And we got to the top of Calf Mountain. And the path keeps going. And we're thinking, oh yeah, this is a loop, because we remember this hike before, and there's more blackberries on the loop. We were sure it's a loop. Is it a loop? You sure it's a loop? I, th I think it's a loop. We did this before. It's a loop. It wasn't a loop. It, it, it meant that the 2.1 hike to the top became a 5.4 mile hike to the next gap, to Jarman Gap from Beagle Gap. And, and we kept going and then like, this isn't curving back. This is going this way. We should be going that way. And, you know, but by then we were another mile and a half down the, the, the and we're not turning back. It's going to come down to the road. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. And, and we're just, we're tired, We've, the water's gone, we're thirsty, and it's hot, and we're sweaty, and we're complaining, and Lydia's back is starting to hurt, and the blackberries are terrible. Anyway, just, and, and, uh, and then we hear the road, we hear traffic on Skyline Drive, we're thinking, oh, good, we can finally, you know, come down and, and, then, and then head back to Beagle Gap. Well, of course, now the point, that's, that we hear the road, we can see, see traffic on Skyline Drive through the trees, you know, you know like a couple hundred yards down, down the mountain, through all the bushes. We can't cut through, but, but it, surely it's going to come down soon. Look at another freaking mile parallel we have to go. Long story short, we get down to Skyline Drive, finally at Jarman Gap, and we're not going back. Lydia's you know, back's hurting, we're all tired. And I'm like, all right, look, you guys stay put. I, I'll go back on Skyline Drive to Beagle Gap. I know, you know, that's the best way and I'll just bring the car back. And it was like three miles. So 
The, the, the hike that was supposed to be four miles up and back now is going to be like this nine-mile round trip for me. So I got a 5K to run, you know, on Skyline Drive to go get the car. And all the while I'm going, this, this, this hike is terrible. <laughs> and I'm tired and I'm, I'm getting dehydrated. And there's just another bend and, on Skyline Drive and another bend. And, man, it must be getting close. Another bend. I'm jogging. You know, I'm running this 5K. And, but then I'm exhausted and I start walking and the car would come around the bend and I'd start jogging again because I don't want to feel like, you know, I got, I'm just running. Um, anyway, finally, finally, turn around the, the last bend and there's my car and I come back. And like, Lord, why, why am I here? Like, where are you leading me? As we follow Jesus, it's not uncommon, right, that we find ourselves on paths that we don't like. We feel lost, we feel disoriented, we're suffering, we're uncomfortable, and this isn't what we signed up for. And yet, if, if we're committed to following Jesus, inevitably, that's what's going to happen. He will take us places that we ourselves would not choose uh, to go. We will realize eventually that our expectations of Jesus are false. We don't know him as well as we think we do because he's saying, go this way, and I'm thinking, and I want to, that's the way. And that way looks dark and deadly, and this way seems comfortable and happy. And Jesus says, no, this way. So what do, what do we do with unpredictable Jesus? What do we do with the Jesus we can't tame, the Jesus we can't lead, the Jesus we can't, in whose mouth we can't put a bridle because Jesus is not a horse. He's not a sheep. He's the shepherd. And he's the leader. So what do we do with that Jesus? Uh, we're trying to know him, right? And, and to know him, you got to be with him. And in order to be with him, you got to follow him. But man, sometimes... We end up way out of the way, feeling lost and, and disoriented. So this is, this is one of those paths for the disciples. Verse 27, Jesus says to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Which is a kind of a strange thing for Jesus to say. He's actually quoting... Zechariah, one of the prophets, uh, Zechariah 13, verse 7, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So Gethsemane is at the base of the Mount of Olives. Jesus says, all right, guys, it's time to leave. Let's go to the Mount of Olives. And they end up in Gethsemane. You know, like I said, 1.25 mile walk, hike to a place that they don't want to go. The disciples, you know, they're, they're still humming Psalm 118. The Lord is good. His love endures forever. This is great. Little did they know they're, they're, they're taking this hike into darkness, a hike into a place that's going to be very, very hard. Jesus had been telling the disciples all along that this is the plan. They're going to, that the Son of Man is, is heading to Jerusalem. He'll be betrayed. He'll suffer. He'll die. And then he'll be raised. And he, he told them three times in between Mark 8, chapters 8 and 10, and they just don't have a paradigm for this. They, the, the disciples don't get it. They're, they're, they're just, you know, high on victory. They're high on God's good. His steadfast love endures forever. And can you blame them? 
Because up to this point, all they've ever really witnessed is Jesus on top. All they've ever seen so far is Jesus silencing the Sadducees and, you know, um, defeating death, (laughs) destroying demonic strongholds and putting down the Pharisees and, you know, silencing sickness, you know, all, all of these things that Jesus is doing every time they turn around. Man, we've never seen anything like this before. He does all things well. And so we really can't blame the disciples for not having a paradigm for what Jesus is talking about. I'm going to strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And they all go, huh, what? What does, he, what does that mean? I don't know. You know what that means? It's just another one of those cryptic things he says, right? Yeah, it'll be fine. So he said he'll be raised up, right? He'll meet us in, in Galilee. Raised up sounds good, right? Raised up. Yes, we like that. That sounds like victory. We'll stick with raised up. That's where I'd be. That's where all of us should be. Because up to this point, they've never seen Jesus take a hit. Up to this point, they've never seen Jesus suffer. Up to this point, they've never seen the opposition get the upper hand. Jesus has always been on top. It's about to change. So Peter stands out as this example of the disciples saying, hey, you know, wait, I'm not going to deny you. I'm not going to cave. You know, I'm going to stick with you to the end. And, uh, and, and the rest of the disciples join in, right? So they're all trying to know Jesus. They're, they're following him. They're trying to be with him. And they're looking forward to a happy ending. And we can't blame them. But what Jesus says is that you're going to deny me, Peter. And there's times when we all follow suit and and we end up denying that we know Jesus, even though we want to know him, even though we're trying to be with him, even though we're following him, we don't do that perfectly. And the sinful nature gets the best of us. And we have to recognize that and repent of that so that we can know him better and, and, and continue to follow him. Peter says to Jesus, verse 29, even though they all fall away, I will not. Right? And, and notice what he's doing. Peter's comparing himself to the rest of the disciples, these bozos, you know, these cowards. Even though they all fall away, I, I will not. Right? And, and so Peter's got this bravado. And, and there's a part of that that, that, that that we can admire. The rest of the disciples, you know, they all said the same. And, and we can admire this collective resolve um, to, to stick with Jesus even to the end. I, I, don't, I don't in any way question their integrity. I think they really mean what they say here. But what I do question is their paradigm. I think they mean what they say. I just think they have no idea what they're talking about. Because they're signing up for a victory march. Give thanks to the Lord. He's good. His love endures forever. We've never seen Jesus take a hit. This is just going to be more of the same. And sure, I will go down to the mat. I'll die with you, Jesus, or whatever. But there's like no possibility that that could ever happen. Is that a real oath? If you're not truly counting the cost, like if they really knew it was going on, they would each know that they had just taken a martyr's oath. but they have no concept. I don't question their integrity. I just question their paradigm. They they don't have any idea what's going on here. 
And, and we've got kind of the evidence for that because, yeah, they're still doing the same old, same old, competing with each other. And Peter's, you know, putting down the rest of the disciples and the rest of the disciples jump on the bandwagon. No, no, Peter's not better than us. We'll, we'll die with you too. It's still, they're still playing the same game. It's the same paradigm they've had all along, and things are about to change dramatically. So what, what, why is Jesus quoting Zechariah? Um, I know all of you are, are so familiar with Zechariah, right? You read this in your quiet times. One, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, if you haven't read Zechariah, go ahead and, and check it out. We did a series on it uh, a couple of years ago, but, um, but Zechariah is interesting because uh, he's one of the most quoted prophets in the Gospels. Again and again in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we run across Zechariah. And Zechariah is, is you know, this important chapter, chapter 13, where we get the context for why is Jesus saying uh, that Zechariah, the prophet, said that the, the Lord would strike the shepherd and the sheep would be scattered. What's the point? What's going on there? Well, the big picture comes from the beginning of that chapter where verse 2 of Zechariah 13 says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they, they shall be remembered no more. So immediately we understand that Striking the shepherd and scattering the sheep has something to do with getting rid of false religion, getting rid of idolatry, of, of getting uh, so that the idols, the names of the idols are remembered no more. We don't, wanna, we don't want idolatry. And, you know, back then it was like idols of wood or stone or, or metal. And nowadays we've got more sophisticated idols. We don't make little totems. Instead, we... We, we look for salvation and we look for blessing and we look for deliverance from the curse of life from things like food and from things like sex and from things like money and from things like power. And we think those things will deliver us. Like we're not consciously bowing down to them and worshiping them and, you know, having a worship service in the name of, you know, ex-idol. But our default mode is to think I can be delivered from what's painful, and I can deli be delivered from what's heart hurtful through this vehicle, through this avenue, through this thing. They can be legitimate things, they can be good things, and they can be really illegitimate things. You can turn anything into an idol, good thing or a bad thing. But an idol is something that we're looking for salvation from. We're looking for blessing, we're looking for deliverance from a curse. And that actually the biggest idol that you and I have, it's not food, it's not money, it's not sex, it's not power. The biggest idol that you and I are tempted to bow down before is the idol of a God who's up in his heaven and who we read about in the Bible. And we even come into this building and worship him or we you know, tune in and we worship him from our homes and we think that if I, if, I, if I do my part, then he'll do his part. And the God you know, that, that I'm coming to engage with uh, is really just here to bless me and to make my life comfortable. And this God thinks like me. He acts like me. Uh, he, he chooses the things that I choose. Uh, he likes the things I like. He hates the things I, I, don't, I, I don't like. Uh, he votes like me. And he, he basically votes for me. He's here to endorse my life. 
He's, he's here to affirm my choices and to just kind of rubber stamp what I want. And, and that's this God that we've ended up making in our image instead of recognizing that no, 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 he made me in his image. That's the idolatry that's in us. This God that's just there to bless us, but not to change us. But he's there to affirm us and to make our lives easy and comfortable. That is the biggest idol that any of us are tempted to worship. Religious people are tempted to worship. So can I just tell you that God's a lie? Do I have to spell that out? That's a lie, the false God. It's an idol of our own making. It's not the God of the Bible. It's not the true God. Uh, instead, what we need is a, is a revelation of the true God, the authentic God that we can worship and we can repent of the false gods that we've kind of created in our own hearts. And God is committed to correcting our view of who he is. He's committed to refining us. He's committed to changing us. He's committed to sanctifying us. He's committed to purifying us and perfecting us. So is that a simple process? Is that an easy process? No. So why is Jesus quoting Zechariah? What's the point of saying, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered? Well, if God is committed to ridding us of idols, and if he's the true God and he doesn't want us believing lies about him, then we have to see that there's some, para, some connection, a correlation between God striking Jesus to show us who he is, truly, and scattering the sheep to give us a picture of who God really is. And that's how we're going to get to know him. We're trying to know him. There's times when we definitely deny that we know him and we turn to false gods. And if we're really going to know him, then it's going to take some dying. Some dying on our part. We, are, are you dying to know Jesus? Am I dying to know him? Is that really my posture? Is that really what I want deep down more than anything? Am I willing to kind of lay down my life to know Jesus? Because that's what it's going to take. Uh, for us, for our view of God to be refined. Zechariah, again, uh, that whole, go read Zechariah 13. That's your homework. Read Zechariah 13, and uh, here's the bookend, uh, or um, I'm sorry, here's the middle. The bookends were striking the shepherd, and I'm getting rid of the idols, and here's how that works. God says, I will refine them as one refines silver, and test them as gold is tested. Like this refiner's fire, a crucible, is what's going to be required for us to be rid of our idols, and to know God as he truly is. Um, silver, in case you don't know, it, when it's put in a crucible, that crucible has to be heated up to 962 degrees for that silver to melt, for it to be refined properly. That's just Celsius. <laughs> 962 degrees Celsius. 1,764 degrees Fahrenheit. That's a hot crucible. That's an uncomfortable place to be. But you got to put silver through that because you don't go digging up silver in the dirt and, and take out a nice, shiny, you know, clean piece of beautiful metal. No, instead, you, you, what you end up digging up is, is lead or copper, and the silver is all mixed in with either lead or with copper. And you put the lead or the copper in the crucible, and that's what separates those things. And then you can take out the silver, and you know, that's how you refine it. And it takes a lot of heat, and it, and, and it hurts. 
in order for God to refine us and to take away the lead and take away the copper so that we shine like silver, it, it, it's uncomfortable. It can be a painful place. But God is committed to us knowing him personally that we may be perfect, that we may be complete, that we may be without impurity. Uh, George MacDonald is a Scottish preacher who really influenced C.S. Lewis, by the way. And uh, listen to this from a sermon that he preached called The Consuming Fire. George MacDonald said that love loves unto purity. And love has ever in view the absolute loveliness of that which it beholds. Therefore, all that is not beautiful in the beloved, all that comes between and is not of love's kind must be destroyed. And our God is a consuming fire. And if you're listening to that Scottish brogue carefully, um, you heard something very enticing and something very disrupting. The enticing piece is this. Love has ever in view the absolute loveliness of that which it beholds. God looks at us and, and has in his, in his view in us this absolute loveliness. He sees us and he loves us. And the disruptive part is that he is also committed to destroying all that comes between love and beauty and is not of love's kind. And then we go, oh no. But that's the mission of God. Trials and tests and crucibles that that refine our faith, perfect us, and purify us, they feel like death to us because something's dying. My selfishness is dying. My pride is dying. My preferences are dying. Dying to self. Dying to my idols. Dying to my comfort. Dying to my you know, way of making life work. All that's got to die. It's got to be sacrificed on the altar of self in order to know Jesus better. And it feels like death. It feels like death to me, and it feels like death to you. But are you dying to know Jesus? Am I dying to know Jesus or not? Because what's going to happen is things are going to come our way, and he's going to lead us on these paths, and we go, I don't like this path, and I don't like where this is headed, and I don't like what's going on here. But if Jesus is leading us there, then we, we, we still follow. we got to go. So what's it worth to us to know the real God, to know him by name? to know him personally, to be with him? And are we willing to endure the things that will, that will get us there? You know, or are we fair-weather Christians? Are we so committed to our comfort that we don't really want to know the real God? We'd rather just be happy and full. Um, but, you know, you, you can't hold on to that. As much as we want, you know, our comfort, inevitably things happen, things like COVID, uh, things like 2020 with an asterisk where everything that we plan and everything that we want and everything that we desire seems to get messed up and, and is in flux. And we're frustrated and we're unhappy and we're tired and we're struggling. And in those moments where we're suffering, in those moments where we're uncomfortable and we're on a path that we don't want to be on, what are we believing about God? Do we, do, we, do we think God is, is faithful and we have to trust him? Or are we believing the, the idol? Are we thinking that, well, this idol is not working for me. My idol of, of the God who's committed to my comfort is failing me. God isn't nice. God's mean. I can't trust him. Or God's out of control. He's weak and he's powerless. 
or, you know, God is not, not somebody that I want to follow anymore. So what do you believe about God in the trial? What do you believe about God in the crucible? What do you believe about God when we're suffering? What do you believe about God when you suffer discomfort? When there's pain, maybe you're hungry, maybe you're thirsty, maybe you're tired. Uh, what do you believe about God when you're being discriminated against? because of who you are, because of what you look like, because of your color, because of how you sound, because of, how, you know, maybe you don't have a lot of money or because of your gender, whatever. Just because of who you are, what do you believe about God when you're suffering from other people because of that? What do you believe about God when in the middle of suffering false accusations and injustice, when things happen and you go, this isn't fair. And, God, why aren't you doing something about this, you know, thing that I'm, that I'm suffering? Or, or are you trusting him? And what do you believe about God when, when you suffer people's uh, rejection, when you suffer loneliness? What do we believe about God when we suffer temptation? What do we believe about God when we suffer betrayal? What do we believe about God when we suffer because of other people's sins against us? Like that takes some dying to self to hold on to Jesus in those moments. And it's hard. The reason why silversmiths will refine the silver is because they're, they're looking for something. Uh, silver is valuable. I, I picked this up from, I think it's the Encyclopedia Britannica. Silver has long been valued for its white metallic luster, its ability uh, to be readily worked and you know, resist corrosive effects and so on. But it's, it's bright, it's, it's got this luster of a pure metal because of its electron configuration. If you're into, you know, metallurgy and, I don't know, whatever class you had to take to learn this stuff, uh, its electromagnetic uh, wavelength is longer than 3,000 angstroms, which is just a fancy way of saying that it effectively reflects all white uh, color of the wavelength, white wavelength colors. That's what makes it so bright. That's what makes it so reflective. And the silversmith is committed to refining the silver, polishing it, and doing all that until I have this uh, handy mirror that uh, Becky Elkins let me borrow about five minutes before the worship service, and I can't even open it. I can't, I can't. Just sit tight, and I'm going to pretend. Oh, look, the back is, is reflective. There's a mirror. But, so what's, the silversmith, he's, he's going to keep you know, polishing, keep grinding, keep refining the silver until what? Until you know, the silversmith sees his reflection in the silver. And God is committed to continuing to refine us and to purify us until he sees his reflection in us. The true God can see his likeness. We're made in his image, not vice versa. And he's going to keep refining us not only until he sees his image in us, but others can see his image in us. Can people see God's reflection in you? Yeah, in many ways, of course. And in some ways, not so much. And those are the places he's refining, smoothing, polishing, grinding sometimes, applying heat sometimes. 
And that's how we get to know him better. So this God who comes to us in the person of Jesus, who wants us to know him as he truly is, not the fake God that we think we you know, are worshiping, not the idol that you know, is just going to satisfy all of our desires and, and lead us to places we always want to go. Now, this God will oftentimes lead us to places we don't want to go in order to show us something about him that we don't know yet. We can't know unless we follow him. Zechariah 13 says, they will call upon my name. And I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people. Imagine God saying that about you. You are my people. They are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. What are you willing to put up with and to suffer and to endure in order to know God by name? To have him say, you are my people, and to say, the Lord is, is my God. What are you willing to endure? What are you willing to suffer? And, and that's an important question, because we, we do have to die in order to know him. And he raises us up to new life, and that's glorious. But the real question, the real question is not what are you willing to, to do to know him, but what was God willing to do to know you? What was God willing to suffer in order for us to know him. Jesus was willing to be struck as the shepherd. He willingly went into the Garden of Gethsemane. He took the lead on that. To, to, to see Zechariah 13 fulfilled, to be struck so that we would know that this God was willing to be uncomfortable and to face pain and to face suffering and to face thirst and to face hunger and to face sleeplessness and to face all this kind of, of stuff that, you know, rattles our cage when we suffer pain. And Jesus was willing to suffer it for us to know him. And Jesus was willing to suffer discrimination for, for us to know him. He was, you know, a Jew and the Romans were, you know, obviously looking down on the Jewish people, but even from his own people, right? You know, the elite and the upper class and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are all looking down on him. Who's this uneducated rabbi, upstart, thinks he knows something and so on. And, you know, everywhere he turns, there's opposition. And Jesus is suffering from false accusations of people mistreating him and saying things about him that aren't true. And all the unjust things that happen to Jesus being tried and condemned as a criminal, even though he is the perfect human being, the sinless one was condemned and suffered and crucified like a criminal. He would suffer betrayal. He would suffer temptation, tempted just as we are, yet without sin. He would suffer loneliness and rejection. He would suffer because of the sins of others. And we wouldn't know any of that unless the shepherd was struck. That's how much he wants us to know him. And he suffered on that cross. He suffered crucifixion so that all who call on him might know him as he truly is, the God who suffers, the God who gives his life in exchange for our lives so that we might live. And he died so that we could be raised, raised with him and all who trust in him. I don't know, have you been worshiping the real God, true God? 
Do you know him? He forgives our sins. He forgives your sins. Anyone can call on him and know that their sins are forgiven, that they are right with God, that God says, you are my people. And we can know him by name, Jesus, the true God. There's another place in John, John 19, where we hear from Zechariah. One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear. At once there came out blood and water. And these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. They will look on him whom they have pierced. Zechariah 12. Jesus suffered all of this and more in order to eradicate, to eliminate the names of the false gods, the idols that we believe in, the God who is mad at us, the God who is um, angry all the time, the God who is unfair, the God who makes you suffer because he doesn't care about you. Jesus died on the cross to eradicate that idol. He died on the cross to eradicate the idol of God, the God who's passive, the God who doesn't command much, doesn't expect much, doesn't want anything from you except for you to just live a happy, comfortable life. Jesus died on the cross to kill that idol. Jesus suffered so that we might know how much he loves us and what he did to forgive us so that we might follow him. Yeah, suffer with him sometimes. But ultimately, be raised with him. Let's pray. Lord, we are recipients of your your incredible grace to us. Uh, Thank you for not being content just to affirm uh, false views that we have of you um, and and misunderstandings we have about your uh, your nature and your preferences. Lord, thank you for putting to death the idol of a God who's distant or a, a God who's harsh and unforgiving, for putting to death the idol of a God who's blind uh, to injustice or a God who's out for vengeance or a God who's just simply there to smile on all of our choices or to just make us happy and comfortable. Uh, Lord, instead, we thank you for being a God who wants to change us, who wants to sanctify and purify us to make us more like you, uh, to make us more loving, more truly willing to suffer, that others would be blessed, that you would get glory, that we would find our real happiness in you and in your kingdom. So Lord, please uh, give us faith, give us repentance of the wrong ways that we've looked at you. Lord, give some who who are listening this morning even um, new faith, brand new faith. Make them new creations uh, who call upon you for the first time. And for the rest of us, let us keep calling on you. Help us to keep seeing you as you truly are. Keep refining us. Keep leading us in places that are going to show us the real you, even if those places are hard to be in. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.